All right, I want to start out with Chris and I today. What we like to do on um, Saturdays and Sundays, but really all the time, is find a good show that we like to watch together. We like a good series. If you guys can think of good series, please send them to us because we're always wanting to watch a good series. But we found one today on Netflix called The Blue Miracle. Has anyone watched it? Well, the reason that we um, watched it was it had um, Dennis Quaid in it, which we like. And it was trending, you know, number five on Netflix. You're like, what's trending this week? I need to watch it, right? And it's a story. I'm not going to give away the whole thing, but you can imagine. It's a faith-based show on Netflix. Go figure. It's about an orphanage in Mexico. Um, There is a, a man who is the head of the orphanage, and he takes the boys off the streets. And he's running into trouble with the bank and needs to pay off his bills. And so they go into this fishing competition, and you can imagine the rest, right? A good, clean family movie, which could have been made by Disney. We were so shocked. And it was really, really good because it was uplifting. It had a great story. It was redemptive in the end. And the thing that bugged me, and Chris is like, don't bag on that movie, but I'm like, this bugs me, is that the world is so afraid to say the word Jesus or God or the Lord or anything like that. They might say prayer, like we're going to pray, or there might be this really like vague kind of faithish kind of thing, but to come right out and say, you know, we're going to ask the Lord to help us do X, Y, or Z is just not something they can do. Um, here's one of the, uh, this is an interesting review. It got about 60% on Rotten Tomatoes because, I mean, you can either think it's cheesy or you can be uplifted by it. I cho- we chose to be uplifted, but I was kind of bummed by that. And the review is, it should be pointed out that for better or worse, the film has a core of faith and prayer. But even the explicit moments aren't too much if you're an atheist like me. In fact, the only element of the film that doesn't work is that we know what the film will be from the first act. That said, the fact that Papa Omar is the center of the story and the person who saves the day keeps this inspirational film from becoming yet another white savior story. And that, you know, it, that was a positive review on, on Rotten Tomatoes. It didn't get like five stars. It got like three out of five. Um, I went and did a little research because I'm like, I know that that man was a Christian, and I know this is a faith-based story that Hollywood is afraid to tell. So I went and looked, and it's called Casa Hogar is the name of the orphanage. And it's a real place in Cabo San Lucas. It's a real orphanage. Um, And shocker, it is faith-based. The man is a Christian. He said, the real Papa Omar says, I want everyone to have the opportunity to see Casa Hogar and how God is doing his work. And then he says this, I'm just going to give you the, do you mind if I give you the end? Is it fine? Okay. So they win. (laughs) They go into fishing competition. They win. And, you know, the Lord saves the day for them, basically. He says, we won the Bisbee's Marlin World Tournament. My first time fishing a Marlin, angler Omar Venegas said after the win. First time in a famous tournament and first place. Let me tell you, only God does this miracle. God, the only God, creator of all that exists today, he decided to bless Casa Hogar with this huge prize. Hi, Erin. And I just thought, I wanted to share the story as kind of an intro to you. This was back in 2014, Chris, or 2016 when they won this, 14, that God's alive and well in our world, and he cares about the orphans, and he cares about the people that are losing their house because of The bank is foreclosing. He cares about this world. And he delivers miracles today. And I wish Hollywood would give him credit. And I wish our world would give him credit. I'm just going to tease you with that. I'll get back to that a little bit. It's a good movie, and you should watch it. 
Um, and it, it's good. I just want there to be, I want to give credit where credit is due. Is that fair? So I'm going to start out with this. Uh, we're talking about community today, and it, I hope it's not my traditional community story, although I can't not talk about that because that's my heart. But this book, The Other Half of Church, is based on neurotheology, which kind of validates what I've, I've already known in my heart but not being able to express verbally. And this does for me what I'm like, wow, this is, I affirm this. But now it's backed up by science. How cool is that, you know? So a lot of you know my testimony back in, um, I really had that crossroads experience with the Lord. I grew up a Christian my whole life. But that real crossroad experience I had was back in 2003 when my husband at that time uh, was called up to the Iraq war. And it was right after 9-11. He went to the war. He's going to be called up for two years. And I went through a huge crisis in my life. It was a crisis of fear and stress and anxiety because I just did not know what was going to happen in my world. He was a pilot with United. United went bankrupt. They declared bankruptcy either that year or the year before. I don't know, right around then. I mean, we, I can remember listening to the union phone call where one after another they called for a strike. They called for a strike. They called for a strike. And as soon as the strike was approved, the company came out and said, we're declaring bankruptcy. You know, and that was either while my husband was in Iraq or right before or right after. Anyway, it was just piled on stress after stress. And, and he wasn't around and I just, you know, I was like, I don't know what I, I don't know what to do with myself. I, I don't know how to cope with this. I simply don't know what to do. And I remember a couple years before that, I had lived in Watauga, Texas. Do you guys know where Watauga is? Bless you. It's just north of Fort Worth. It's a little city, little suburb of Fort, north of Fort Worth. And my husband at that time was gone all the time, and I was very lonely and didn't have a lot of friends. And there was this awesome Baptist church, because there's a lot of Baptist churches in Texas. There's an awesome Baptist church that was offering one of the very first Bethmore Bible studies ever. It was the study on the tabernacle, which was her first one. So it was the first women's Bible study that I had ever gone to like that. No, I think it was the first one, actually. And I went to it. And there's, you know, 15, 20 women. And you know, you know the style of Bethmore Bible study. You, you, you're in a group of women. It's very fellowship. And then you write out your homework and you talk about it. You watch a video. It's, it's incredibly awesome. It opened up this world to me that I didn't know existed. And I was so blessed when I lived in Texas. So when I moved up to here, um, you know, I started going to my church and, and everything. But I can't say I was super plugged in. And then 2003 hits me. And now the Iraq war is on top of me. And now the job, we don't know if that's going to happen. I'm not working. i got three kids. And I, I don't know what to do, right? So I said, I said to myself, you know, after the doctor had told me I was depressed and wanted to put me on medicine, I was like, holy moly, maybe I am depressed. You know, I, I, didn't even, um, I didn't even think that was possible. But I look back and I'm like, of course I was. I was stressed out, uh, you know, beyond the max. And so I said, you know, what, what gave me life before? What was it that I've done in my life that really gave me a sense of purpose and was so life-giving? I'm like, oh, it was that Bethmore Bible study. So I went to Bob Holloway. And, well, first of all, you guys know this, but I'll just tell the story again. I went to the, um, the woman who was the, like, office manager. They didn't really have, they had JR and they had a youth pastor and, like, nothing else. And she was the... Um, office manager, I guess. And I went to her and I said, you know, I'd really like to start um, Bethmore Bible study, you know, 
the tabernacle because that's what I know. And she looked at me and she goes, oh, we have enough women's Bible studies. We don't need another one. I was like, what? You don't need another Bible study? What person ever says that, you know? So then I went to Bob Holloway and he's like, absolutely, you can start one. <laughs> so I didn't know what I was doing. So I, um, I went to Ron, you know, all the boldness in the world because I don't know any of the protocol, right? So I went to Ronnie Haynes and I said, hey, can you give me like a, like a um, email list or an address list of the women in the church so I can send out like a little postcard or something. And he gave it to me. And I think I got like A through C or something like that. And I sent out my little postcard, and lo and behold, 30 women showed up for that first Bible study. 30 women. I'll never forget Jan Fenema. She said to me, Paula, you know Jan. She goes, Paula, I'm going to show up with, um, what's her daughter's name? Jessica. Jessica but don't call on us to answer any questions. I said, I won't. Because <laughs> you know I will. I can't do that, right? She goes, don't call on us to answer any questions. I'm like, okay. I was just happy they would show up, you know, and she brought her daughter. And one Bible study turned into two Bible study, turned into four Bible studies, turned into a women's ministry, turned into a job on staff, turned into a community pastor, you know, turned into something, right? This one thing that had been so life-giving to me. And so when I say there's power in community, I mean there's power in community because I have experienced it firsthand. And it was something that God did for me um, through tragedy in my life, through stress and, and whatever you want to call that, that pressed-in kind of thing where you don't know where to go. And God's like, oh, I'm going to do something with this. And he really walked me right into my destiny. He walked me right into what I have been created to do. And so ever since that time, I have been all in about community. I've been all in about Christian community. Let me tell you something. I go to poker, not all the time, on Thursday nights. They've got community. It's not good community. It's not godly community, but it's community. So the community I'm for, I love community. I love fellowship. But I'm really for godly community because godly community has everything it takes for transformation in our lives, and that's what I'm about. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight, about this, this, this author. Um, let's see if I can figure out his name. I can't remember. It's called The Other Half of the Church, if you want to look it up, because I do want him to have... Um, well, Jim Wilder's one of them, and then he's a, it's a co-author. Oh, Michael Hendricks. Michael Hendricks is the other guy. So the, um, this guy, well, actually, Joe and Stephanie started talking about the, the author, um, Jim Wilder, as the neurotheologian, and then I went to the 3 to 5 Club, and it was reinforced to me by Sandy Corgan, and she goes, have you heard about this guy called Jim Wilder? Wilder. He talks about neurotheology. He talks about relationship being the key to how we learn, how we grow, how we transform, all that. And I'm like, oh, now I heard that man's name twice. I need to look into it. So I got that book called The Other Half of the Church, and that's what I want to talk to you about. And it talks about two places of truth. We've talked about this before, your head and your heart. We have two places where we hold truth and we act out of truth, our head and our heart. And, it's, and really, you can put it this way, the right brain versus the left brain. So the story is this, this uh, Michael Hendricks, he shares his conversion experience, and he had a conversion experience one night in his bedroom where the Lord came to him and spoke to him 
not audibly, but in a very powerful way. He didn't come from a Christian home, didn't, had never read the Bible. It was a very powerful experience in his life. And he ended up going to a college, going to college, and becoming connected with other Christians like, you know, um, FCA or, you know, all the, the Christian groups on campus. And, and they, he started doing community with this group of people for eight years. They did, they would meet you know how you are when you're young and you don't have any kids and you can stay up all night and do whatever you want to do? That's what they did in college, right? They would meet and have pizza and they would pray for each other and learn the scripture. And one month, um, one day a month, they would pray all night and they did these incredible things together. And he says, I never grew more than I grew in those eight years when I because he was in college and he went on to his master's. And then what happened is what always happened, your season shifts. Right, so now the, now his friends are getting married and they're having kids, and all of a sudden their community starts to dissipate, and he starts to have this angst in his life, and it, he's like, "What's going on? I grew so much in eight years, and now I feel like I'm drifting. I don't feel rooted. I don't feel like anything's going on. What?" What happened? Why has my growth kind of stalled? Why am I not moving forward anymore? And he would meet as a pastor with other pastors because he was a pastor of spiritual formation in his church. What had happened was, you know, he had this um, conversion experience and, and um, he kind of went to seminary and did these things and, and became a pastor of what's called spiritual formation or a pastor of discipleship. The idea is to help people to grow from one place to another, right? That was his job. And so he would meet with these other pastors once a month, other pastors, similar situations, similar jobs, and they would kind of bemoan, why are our people not growing? Like, what are we doing wrong? Why is this not working? And they couldn't understand why they were not growing. And so... Um, they got introduced, one of the members introduced, they, one of the members was 80 years old said, we need to consider neurotheology at, you know, for this problem. And, the, and I remember Michael Hendricks says, he was 80 years old, so I thought he was having a senior moment. Like, I didn't think he knew what he was talking about. He says, until he said it again the next week, or next time they met, and he said, well, maybe I should take him personally. And he brought with him this 80-year-old guy, age, age does not disqualify us, brought with him Jim Wilder, who was this neurotheologist, right? And that changed Michael's whole life. It changed his whole paradigm. It changed everything because um, Jim Wilder introduced the idea of right-brained and left-brained learning and thinking. Now, usually we think of right-brained as being um, creativity and left-brained being logic and strategy and language and stuff like that. Which is true, but actually, the right brain and the left brain are more than that. The right brain is the brain of relationship, of connectedness, of experiences. Whenever we have a um, um, a stimulus come to us, we have what are our what of our it's taste, smell, touch, hear, and see, right? Five senses. Whenever we are. Um, have those five senses. They, okay, I'm going to just show you. I'm going to describe. It enters through the back of your right brain, goes up to the front of your brain, goes across, and goes back out your left brain. That's how stimulus is processed in your brain. 
like in a supermarket aisle. If you went up the supermarket aisle, turned and came back the other aisle. That's how anything that we experience goes through our brain, all right? Is that cool? Here's the interesting thing. The right side of the brain is the fast track, and the left side of the brain is the slow track. Left is responsible for conscious thought, speech, strategies, problem-solving logic, and stories. The right side is responsible for individual identity, group identity, emotional attunement, assessment of surroundings, and relational attachments. Jim Wilder did not come up with this on his own. This is out of UCLA. It's actually a study they did on right and left brain attachment. Attachment. And they, they figured out that right and left brain is different than what we've always been taught, that we use both of our sides when we encounter something, but our right brain is our pre-conscious thought and our left brain is our conscious thought. We operate from our heart quicker and faster than we operate from what we'd call our mind. Isn't that interesting? Huh, interesting. Here's how Jim explains it. The right brain functions begin with our important relational attachments and are intended to help us be ourselves in relationships. He calls the right side the fast track and the left side the slow track. The right hemisphere is a more powerful processor than the left and samples our environment at six times a second. The left side samples at five times a second, so we often know things faster than we are conscious of them and definitely faster than we can speak about them. We might say the right brain has more horse, horsepower. From a theological point of view, God has put a lot of power into the responsibilities dominant in the right brain of our brains, right side of our brains. These functions must be important to him and crucial to our ability to grow as disciples of Jesus. This validates the heck out of me, just so you know. Ever since 2003, God has been showing me over and over that spiritual growth may be sparked by an, encounter, by an encounter of God, but sustained and grown through the development of meaningful, godly relationships. I mean, I look at our marriage class. We had 17 people last time. What? I know Bob and Janet came because it was special, but still 17 people. And then um, Bob called me last week, and he said, I want to bring somebody, I want to recommend someone else to come to the marriage class. And I'm like, bring them on. We'll figure out how to do it. We'll split up into different groups. I don't know what we'll do. But you know why that works? Because we have built it on relationship. We have built it on relationship. We have built it on right brain connectedness before we go to left brain. Right brain is first. Left brain is second. Don't yawn because you'll make me yawn. I know. Our right brain regulates our whole range of relational life, including people and God, and our experience of emotional connectedness to others. So what it has to do with this, and we kind of know this, the people you hang around with influence who you are, right? For good or for bad. So when I go back to that example of community and poker, because when, this is what Jim says, when we have an event that comes to us, before we consciously think about it, unconsciously in our brain we say, how would, how would our group of people respond to that? How do we need to conform to what our group of people, the people we've chosen to be connected to, will they give us approval for this action or will they give us disapproval for this, this action? So in one sense, who we hang out with is really important because it forms 
a lot of our preconscious decisions, which is good when you're in a godly when you're in a godly community. When you're in an ungodly community, what happens? You're formed by the ungodly values of that group, right? So poker has fantastic community over there, but they're also drunk by 10 o'clock at night. Not making good decisions or good choices by 10 o'clock at night because that may be the value of the group, right? So I love community because it keeps us within guardrails, right? It keeps us within guardrails because we want to be approved of in the group that we're in, which is okay. We look for their, um, their face to light up when they see us. We look to be included in that group. It's important for us to be connected in that group. When we're in the right group, it's the most life-giving thing possible. When we're in an ungodly group, it can lead us right straight to hell. Seriously. Power of community, for good or for bad. But, here's the thing, you guys. In a typical church situation, what does church normally focus on? The left brain. Yes, Sterling, the left brain. What does the church usually say? For spiritual discipleship, you need to read your Bible, you need to pray, you need to meditate, you need to do disciplines to go from A to B. For our whole, for my whole life, Church has said, start with the left brain, and that is how you grow spiritually. And you know what? It's absolutely wrong. We should start with the right brain and add the left brain in. When I was um, over at The Rock, and I don't say this, I do not say this to disparage anybody, but it was funny to me because it was said to me over there, we don't like Bible studies. I don't like the word Bible study. And I would be like, it's not just a study. It's not just a left brain exercise. When we do a Bethmore Bible study, it's about getting together and having a little bit of something to eat, chit-chatting, just like our marriage class, right? It's not about the left brain information. It's about everything that surrounds the left brain information, which just allows you to actually process whatever left brain we get. And in that way, it was hard to explain to people sometimes that groups that our information base can still be very, very life-giving because they're not just information. It's not just like um, a, a university class. You know, think about it. How much did you learn in a university class when you have to sit at a table and take notes? Was that very effective for you? It's a horrible way to learn, right? Yes, you... Oh, Christy learns that way. <laughs> I guess what I mean is in terms of changing and becoming more Christ-like and, and, and becoming disciples of Christ, science supports that you need to start from the right brain. Science supports it. It's not just a Paula thing and it's not just a crazy thing. It's like legit science. And we know science is now the authority, right? Follow the science. Follow the science, people. <laughs> We would label left brain thinking as the mind and right brain thinking as heart thinking. Um, our beliefs and doctrines, our left brain thinking, should always stem from knowing the relational love of God formulated in our right brain. The idea is that love is the basis. The love that we receive from God and we give to God is the basis for our left brain doctrine. 
not the other way around. Legalism says we prove our love by acting and choosing on our left brain, and we prove our love. Right brain thinking says, no, I act out of my love, therefore I make the right choices. Do you see the difference there? And we as a church need to start to really emphasize the right brain more than the left brain. You know, one thing that I knew in my heart, I knew, I knew, I knew in my heart, I knew in my right brain, that part of the spiritual agenda of the lockdown and COVID is to absolutely isolate and separate people and separate people from coming together and having godly community. Because you know what? The right brain is so important and now it's disconnected. Now it's disconnected. It's, it's, it's an agenda. We need to be connected to each other. We were born for connection. You know, when babies are born, if they are not handled, if they're not talked to, you know, babies look when they're, we have a grandson, and one of their developmental things is to start looking and recognizing faces. They want to recognize faces as part of their development and their attachment to their caregiver. We know that when babies are in the hospital, like over in Russian orphanages, that they are not handled, they're not talked to, they're not stimulated by a human being, they have serious emotional issues because their right brain is damaged. They have not learned how to make proper attachment and how to be properly connected. Therefore, they're not able to process out of their left brain because their right brain is stunted. Isn't that interesting? Thank you. So I go back to this movie we watched this morning. Throughout the whole thing, the main character, he's a great guy. And it's not this guy's fault. I'm sure it's, it's Hollywood. I'm sure it's, the, um, I'm sure it's the writers. For some reason, it bums me out so much. Hollywood and general people in general had this idea that religion is some kind of a like self-help program. Or Christianity is some kind of a do-good program. Because he would say throughout the movie, now you know, if you make right choices and do the right things, life will turn out good for you. I mean, seriously, he said that verbatim to these orphanage kids, and I'd be like, why does Hollywood have to portray Christians as being that stupid? Seriously, right? Like, we're just a bunch of moralistic formula kind of people. But for whatever reason, that was something that um, was said throughout the movie, which bummed me out. It's still a good movie. It's not a bad movie. It's just not an accurate. It's not accurate of who God is, Right? This is the lie the enemy is trying to spin. Live out of your left brain, think a certain way, act a certain way, make choices a certain way, then this will happen. And it's actually the reverse. Everything is always the reverse. This is why, you guys, in our universities, the enemy is trying to plant certain thoughts in people's heads. They're trying to plant certain ways of thinking to influence the actions, influence beliefs. But you know why that won't work out in the end? Because it's left brain thinking. And when the rubber hits the road, they're going to act out of their right brain. And if they don't have Jesus in their life, and if their life goes to hell in a handbasket, I'll say it right there, hell in a handbasket, that left brain thinking is not going to work for them because they're not connected. They don't have a place of relationship. That's what Jesus brings to us. He brings the answer to the broken world, which is let's start from a place of love. Let's not say, you know, you're going to make bad choices, but God has forgiven you your past sins, your present sins, and your future sins. He loves you and wants to know you. That's why our motto, if you will, here at Supper Club is first you belong, 
then you believe, then you behave. It's not behavior first, it's belonging first. It's belonging, which is the magic pill, if you will. It's belonging. It's never the other way around. That's legalism. That's the religious spirit, and that's the political spirit. And they don't work. They don't work. And we see this, you know, in the scripture. Jesus chose 12 men to be his intimate friends first. He did life with them for three years before he released them to action. It wasn't like, hey, let's go do this. I'm going to teach you from a religious point of view, and then we're going to do X, Y, or Z. No, he lived life with them for three years, broke bread, worked, taught along the road. It was a life, shared life experience before he was able to release them to action. I'm not saying the left brain is wrong. I'm saying the right brain and the left brain have to come together. It can't be one or the other. It has to be both. And when we start from the left brain, we're actually starting at a handicap. You need to start from the right brain experience. He, this is what Matthew 28, 19 through 20 says, Now wherever you go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to faithfully follow all that I have commanded you, and never forget that I am with you every day, even to the completion of this age. That's when he released the disciples to go and do what they were supposed to do when he was ready to leave, and not before. Yes, they went and practiced before that. They went, he sent the 70 out, and then they come back and report. There was practice runs all the time, because that's how you learn. You practice. But it was still within the relationship. Left-brain discipleship emphasizes beliefs, doctrines, willpower, and strategies, but neglects right-brain loving attachments, joy, emotional development, and identity. Ignoring right-brain relational development creates Christians who believe in God's love but have difficulty experiencing it in daily life, especially during distress. In a left-brain community, we are taught Christian doctrine, but the doctrine has difficulty showing up in our instantaneous reactions. Remember, we act out of our right brain right away. And then we, it's our guts. That's our gut reaction. And then we may come over here and process it, and we may do something different, but our first choice is always out of our right brain. If we don't know the love of God deep down, this right brain is our paradigm. And we want our paradigm, we want our right brain to reflect what Jesus would do. We want to be so immersed in the love of God that our obedience and our desire to be Christ-like flows out of a relationship with Jesus, right? I got to go down to this. It's such a good verse. Judas said, not Judas Iscariot, but Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My father will love them and we will come to them and make our home in them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. The idea is right choices come out of love, not out of thinking. We're taught, there's a common lie that we're taught is change your thinking and you change your feelings. It's the other way around. Deal with your feelings. Deal with your emotions. Your thinking will follow. Isn't that weird? <gasps> what do you think, Christy? She's going, hmm, I don't know about that. <laughs> right? an interesting thing to think about, isn't it? You should, you should explore some more of that brain stuff and tell me about it. Maybe you could come up here and speak.
tell us all about it. Yeah. So the idea is if we're going to be transformed and if we're going to model transformation to the world, what's our number one thing we have to do? Spit it out. Love. We have to... We have to experience God's love, God's love. We have to give God's love, and we have to, we have to show love to the world, right? This is why they, this is what happens when the Christian culture presents a legalistic view of God, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. They're completely turned away. When they see the love of God, this is why I like, actually I like Bethel, and I like, um, churches who really focus on, and our worship is a really good thing of this, is experiencing the love of God first before we go into left-brain teaching. How do we experience and pursue God and know God in our right brain, which opens up our left brain to actually understand what's being taught, right? The thing that I love about Bethel is that they really emphasize the love of God. Because we can't truly understand doctrine or beliefs unless we are deeply convinced of his love for us. So we do need to spend a lot of time on that. Perhaps way more than we spend on in doctrine. It's a paradigm shift, really. Next week, I'm going to talk about, or next time I come back, oh, by the way, next week is Brian Fenimore, yay, and then I've got two guest speakers for June. I'm so excited. One of them is, um, do you guys know Angie Smith? Used to be Angie McCombs. She wrote a book, and she's going to come speak on her book, so one, one week in June, and then um, uh, John Sarah Keeson is going to come, and she's going to preach as well on her testimony, so that's going to be really exciting, so... After they're done, I'm going to come back and I'm going to wrap this up. And we're going to talk about some strategies for opening up your right brain um, and not just concentrating on left. I'm not saying left brain is bad, but we need to concentrate on opening up our right brain and approaching people from our right brain. You know, I'm convinced that when people feel rejected in this world, they gravitate towards communities that will accept them. So let's say you feel like an outcast or you feel like maybe you don't have what people would consider your gender-like whatever, tomboy, effeminate man, whatever, and you don't feel accepted because we all, what's our number one thing? We want to be connected. We, we, out of our right brain, we want emotional attunement. What if you are in a family that when you go to look at your father's face, it doesn't light up when it sees you. It, it's disapproving. What about when, whenever you go anywhere in your community group and you don't feel like you can be yourself and all you receive is a face of disapproval or a face of anger? Do you want to be connected to that group? Or do you want to go to the group that accepts you, whether they have good values or not? That's the group that you're going to attach to because we all look for acceptance. We all look for the face that says, oh my gosh, I'm so glad to see you. 
Are you coming to the Memorial Day barbecue? That's going to be so fun. We want that. We don't want that. That's how important community is. That's the power of community. We either make or break people, right? As Christians, our response needs to be this. Oh, my gosh. Wow. So glad to see you. We reflect the love of Jesus so that people are attracted to the Jesus in us. And they are not attracted to the community that's not good for them. Right? So thank you, Steve. So next time we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about um, joy, relational attachments, identity, and weak community. That's going to be our our next one. And we're going to learn how to um, strengthen that for our own community. And we're going to push into this because this is really important, I think. Left brain is important. Don't get me wrong. I went to Denver Seminary. I love that stuff. Relationship is where it's at, you guys. Relationship is the first part. Then it's the left brain. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for these relational people. I love them so much. Thank you, God, for this church. I ask that you would bless it. I pray, Father, for the pastors of this church, God, that you would bless them, that you would grow their church, Lord. Thank you that they've allowed us to have food again. We're so glad that we can just do life together, Father. I just pray that you would bless our community. Thank you for Brian coming in next week. Thank you the movie theaters are open. Thank you that we can go to Burley and dance. We just love you, Lord. Thank you for everything. We come to the heart of gratitude, God. In Jesus' name, amen.